really passionate for drug development. That's what I've done all of my life. That's the voice of Dario Neri, co-founder and CEO at Philogen, headquartered in Siena, Italy. Listen in to hear insights from Dario about leadership in biopharma and how Philogen is working to discover and develop targeted therapies to treat cancer and chronic inflammation. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Dario Neri, co-founder, chief science officer, and CEO of Philogen, headquartered in Siena. Welcome to BioBoss, Dario. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss with you. Dario, what led you to your role as co-founder, CSO, and CEO at Philogen? This came only very late because I've actually been a professor all my life, at least for the last 27 years. I've spent my life doing biomedical research as professor at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. But 27 years ago, I made an important discovery, at least I think it's important. And together with my brothers, we decided to start a company, which is Philogen, which over time actually grew. And basically two, three years ago, we decided to list the company on the stock exchange because we were in phase three clinical trials with products which were and are promising. And so at that stage, my passion for Philogen was so big that I decided to close my lab in Zurich and move full-time to the company. So actually my history with the company is a history of 27 years, but my history as CEO and Chief Scientific Officer is only very recent. How did you go about making that decision? What Was it a difficult decision to shift over? It was a difficult decision because I really loved my alma mater, my institution. I did my PhD there. I was then in Cambridge almost five years. And as mentioned, I'm still a professor at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. I teach there. But at the same time, it was an easy decision because I'm really passionate for drug development. That's what I've done all of my life. And at some stage, if you're serious about it, you need an industrial dimension to execute your pivotal trials and to hopefully show that we have drugs that can help patients and meet the endpoints in the trial. So it was difficult and easy at the same time. Can you recall what your image of being a leader in an industrial organization was like prior to actually doing it? And then what your experience was once you got into it? My experience is very similar. I've led a group of about 30, 35 persons at academia. And I was already associated with the company. So I've seen it growing from one employee to now 165 employees. And the leadership structure is similar. We try to maintain as much as we can uh, biotech and also academic environment within the company. We are curiosity driven. We publish a lot. But at the same time, we try to be diligent with goals, with timelines. and. To be honest, there is not much of a difference. We strive for excellence in both environments. And uh, with a listed company, we have maybe a couple of more duties to comply with. But 
it's not a completely different life. As chief science officer, sometimes that's a position in which you're, you are part of a team that chooses, that helps to choose the CEO that's going to run it. Sometimes the CSO becomes it. Sometimes one has dual roles as you do. Can you tell me anything about the, the decision for you? Was it, was it straightforward? Was there a, something to weigh there, whether for you to be the CEO or for you to hire a CEO? Actually, not. I tell you a little bit about the structure in our company, because as mentioned, the company was started by myself and my two brothers. And we have complementary skills and we have really run the company for all the past 27 years. So at this moment in time, I am the CEO, but one of my brothers, Duccio, is executive chairman. And we actually split executive roles based on our knowledge. And so you could actually say that the company has a dual CEO structure where Duccio takes care of certain duties and I take care of other duties. And we have tried to have a structure where we do what we are competent at. And so my life may be a little bit easier because some of the executive roles are with my brother. What were you hoping to achieve that could be done at Philogen and not at another company? For many, many years by now, I've been really passionate in one particular scientific approach, which we call targeting, but you could call it targeted delivery. So really taking drugs which are already good and active, making them better because you deliver them to the site of disease and you gain in therapeutic index. So in principle, these drugs can be delivered and can be developed in other companies. And sometimes we do in partnership with large pharmaceutical companies. But there is a special pleasure in doing it within your own company, often with collaborators with whom I've worked for the last 20 plus years. So things can be done in many different ways, but especially when Many of my former PhD students have decided to stay and actually join the company. Then it becomes even more of a team effort. And you have the feeling that this is last, like the last chapter of something that started actually a long time ago and actually soon uh, will be judged uh, by, by the clinical results. So it sounds like you you probably did not actively consider taking your particular interest and in, and in, and bringing it to a larger pharma company and trying to bring that in house as an aspect of that company that probably didn't come into your plans, right? We have some programs which are partnered with pharmaceutical companies, and that's absolutely fine. A company of our dimension cannot do everything, so there are things that you do best in partnership, but there are some programs which have now reached phase three clinical trials, and we were very passionate about them for a long time. And at some stage, you're really curious to see the trials complete, that you want them run and designed the, the way you, you were always hoping for. And so it, it, it came natural. Of course, it takes money to, to run these programs. So the IPO was an important step at the same time. We are quite efficient and also diligent in the use of money. And so at least we have the chance to, to, to follow our dreams. There is a special kind of quality of someone who is so in love with 
connected to an idea that they just have to see it through. Because I'm sure when you get to the stage three clinical trials, the expense of that is, is significant. That, that's probably not an easily made decision. Yes, at the same time, first of all, you know, I've been greatly privileged to have really fantastic teachers. I, I did my PhD with Kurt Wittrich, who later won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. I was then postdoctoral fellow with Sir Gregory Winter, who also won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry and was and is a successful entrepreneur. So to a certain extent, I've seen it done before by very good people. And then when it comes to the cost and execution of clinical trials, yes, it's significant, but it's still manageable, in at least in cancer, because clinical trials in cancer may have 100 to 100 patients. If you think that your drug is very active, you don't have to run clinical trials as in other indications where you may need, I don't know, 15,000 patients. So it's still a dimension that can be managed and where actually the molecules make the difference. So it is a challenge. It helps to have a well-capitalized company, but science drives everything. And so uh, it's still manageable. There are, I'm sure, areas and indications which are much more challenging, but I have the feeling that the types of questions we are asking are feasible and doable. Can you recall at this point, can you recall a moment or a, a time when you were going from a general interest in, in science to a particular thing that really fired your imagination? Yes, actually, I would like to mention two, two events, if possible. Actually, my family has a history in pharmaceutical science. My great-grandfather was the first man to treat patients with anti-anthrax antisera. So in 1899, he treated anthrax patients with sera, antisera, so with antibodies, if you want something very similar to what we are still doing. And since I was a kid, I was actually, my father was running a pharmaceutical company, which is now part of GSK vaccine, but I've seen it from the very beginning. So the first event is actually remembering what my father used to do with the company, the people he brought home. At some stage, the company became Chiron vaccine, then Novartis, and then GSK. But, but actually, I've seen it as a kid. And the second event, and this is more specific, I was at the end of my PhD in Zurich with Kurt Füttrich, and actually my next mentor, Sir Gregory Winter, actually came to Zurich to give a lecture, and he presented the first case of a patient treated with a humanized antibody. You know, Sir Gregory invented antibody humanization and he won the Nobel Prize for it, and that was actually the first patient, a patient with a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, with a spleen of five kilograms, who was treated with a humanized anti-CD2 antibody. And then you could see this huge spleen, the size of a football, shrinking to normal size in a matter of one month. And that was for me a very important moment because at that time I was solving protein structures. I was broadly fascinated by drug discovery, but that was not very specific. The moment you see a molecule that can turn a huge spleen into a normal organ with exquisite specificity, then I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. 
for the next 30 plus years of my life. And so this is a moment that I vividly remember. What do you recall about being eight or nine or 10 as far as what your idea of what you might want to be when you got to be grown up? Do you recall that? Yes, and honestly, I didn't have plans. Uh, I don't know whether to be proud of or ashamed of, but actually my dad uh, actually decided for all the three sons. So he decided I would be a chemist like him. My brother would study business, which he did. And the third one has a PhD in biotechnology and takes care of IP. So I don't know whether this is lack of leadership or whether this is just following the advice of a good father, but he had planned it for us and we actually followed his advice. Maybe it's very Italian, I don't know, but that's the way it went. If you look back over the last week, say, and pick a day, how much of that day is storytelling to investors? How much of it is communicating with the team about science? How much of it is dealing with the exigencies of production of a pilot planning? How does it all fit? We spend a lot of time on executing our industrial plan. Maybe we don't spend enough time in communication, but we spend a lot of time in science and development. So most of my hours are devoted either to the discovery part or to the execution part. And that, that certainly addresses, covers 80, 90% of my time. Does it tend to be shoulder to shoulder, person to person? Does it tend to be remote? No, it's it's often remote also because we have two locations. We have chosen to have Zurich in Switzerland as our discovery site. We do discovery entirely in Switzerland. In Italy, we do GMP manufacturing and we run clinical trials globally. So in the US and in 13 European countries. So. I would say 50-50, 50% really in the same room and 50% via Zoom communication. With these two locations, I commute a lot. I spent maybe two thirds of my time in Italy and one third of my time in Switzerland. And if there is one good thing that COVID brought, you know, alongside the many bad things of COVID was that I think we have learned to work more efficiently remotely we ran actually our IPO completely remotely, so we didn't have to travel, we could communicate, and I think we all learn how to become more efficient with these tools. When someone says, who is Philogen, what's the simplest, most basic answer that, that you like to give? It's a company that innovates targeting, and to be more specific, it's a company which I think is good at taking medications and making them even better because we deliver them to the site of disease. We take this delivery very serious. We image patients, so we really make sure that the drugs reach the site of disease. And believe it or not, very, very often, drugs go everywhere in our body, except where they're supposed to be. And doing this job right actually can be a very good exercise. What is it that distinguishes Philogen and, and makes it a different way of approaching that problem. The strategy is an old strategy. Already Paul Ehrlich spoke about Sauberkugel, magic bullets, these molecules that would find their way to the disease. I think one of our strengths, we have always been very rigorous in using nuclear medicine techniques and also biodistributions in animal models. 
because it's easy to claim, yes, my molecule goes to the site of disease, but to actually show it, it takes a lot of diligence. And we have studied really hundreds and hundreds of patients using radio-labeled preparations of our drugs, really checking that we achieve in patients the selectivity that we claim. So we are not the only one, not the only company that does it, but one of the very few companies that do it, that actually go and actually quantify the selectivity and we build on the selectivity. So if there is one distinguishing factor, I think, is that when we say we target a disease, we actually show this with nuclear medicine imaging techniques. I think I've seen, and you have seen it often enough in science, that we often give for granted things that are not granted. And I, I think a lot of persons give, for example, targeting for granted, that it's easy, you know, make a molecule, maybe couple something to an antibody and it will go to the tumor or to a site of arthritis. I think this is something which many scientists even uh, do not appreciate how difficult it is to do it and to do it with the selectivity that you need. So if there is one aspect that often is probably not addressed with the rigor that it deserves is to really measure this and to really try to optimize your molecules so that you offer to the patients the best you can. Right? Because you hear about targeted drug and you hear about selectivity and specificity all the time, but one thing is claiming something, one thing is to prove it experimentally. Do people sometimes think that you're developing an idea that's not necessarily part of developing a therapy? It sounds to me like you're most definitely in involved in the research that you hope will lead to a therapy. Do people understand that? I think yes, when we can show images. So if you really go through the process and you say, look, this is how we develop the molecule. This is how it works in animal models. And you show pictures. This is how this targeting works in patients. And these are the clinical results. So if you can guide people through the process, it's actually much easier because you are showing pictures. You are not showing graphs or strange chemical symbols. You are showing something that intuitively we are very familiar with. The concept of targeting of selectivity becomes very visual the moment you give imaging data. Did your background lead you to see the, the advantage of imaging right from the beginning? Or is that something that you discovered along the way? It took me some time. I, I've done many things in my life. I've started as a synthetic organic chemist, so I was doing synthesis. I then thought, okay, you need to know about proteins because a drug is something that binds to a protein. So I've spent almost five years solving protein structures. And then I started using proteins as therapeutics, antibodies, before going back to small organic molecules. And actually, uh, there were two moments where really imaging became very important in my life. The first was that I was in Cambridge, and we were the first, uh, together with Sir Gregory Winter, we were the first to actually have molecules, antibodies in that case, that selectively recognize tumor blood vessels, but not normal blood vessels. So we had antibodies that could really home to the tumor neovasculature and spare the rest of the body. So once you 
have it, you want to show it. And so that was the first moment that we said, okay, we need to image it. We need to show it microscopically and macroscopically. So that was a need. And then also, again, I go back to my family. My uncle was professor of nuclear medicine uh, in Rome. And actually, he, uh, he always insisted on the importance of nuclear medicine. And it took me some time, but at some stage, I actually realized it was true because that's the way to show non-invasively whether your molecule really goes where it's supposed to go. Of course, radioactivity needs infrastructure because you don't do it in the kitchen of your home, so you need specialized facilities, but actually it pays off because the information you get is invaluable. So let's talk about partnership. Uh, earlier in our conversation, when I was asking about had you considered taking your idea to a large pharma company and, and trying to build from within, and you'd said, no, but there certainly is a place for uh, for partnerships. What makes a good partner to Philogen? We collaborate with many companies. And if I can name three attributes that we value very much, uh, uh, the first one is being very honest and direct about the results. So data first. Uh, the second one is this desire, this sense of urgency to get the, the job done. And the third one, if I may say that the goal may be even more important than the procedure. And it's important to be correct from a procedure perspective, but this passion for, you know, achieving a goal, which may be success, it may be actually showing that the molecule doesn't work, but actually this passion of getting an answer, a clear answer, a yes or no answer, is very important. And I'm guessing that those qualities are also ones you look for when you're hiring. I, I, you, it sounds like you have a considerable number of people at Philogen. How do you filter to make sure you're getting the people who fit for you? Obviously, the most difficult part of any job. Um, I was lucky because I've trained at ETHA 85 PhD students in my career. And now at Philogen, actually, we are continuing. We have industrial PhD programs. Recently, Chem, one of the leading journals in chemistry, actually dedicated an editorial to our industrial PhD programs as a possible way to go. So what we have tried to do is to actually recreate within the industrial environment PhD programs so that actually people can work three, four years full time on a project. And very often they are the ones who then transition to leadership roles because they want to see their molecules moving through the development path. So I, I believe very, very much in this process of training, getting people when they are young and actually letting people who are successful at what they do grow within the company. Is that unusual? I think it is. I've heard from one of my colleagues in a very large pharmaceutical company, and he was also a professor at very famous university and late in his career transitioned to industry. He told me that actually what he was missing most in the new environment was not working with PhD students. They had great postdocs, great scientists, but this contact with the very young uh, talented students is often missing at industry. We have tried 
to do it as much as possible, to really have the discovery start with young people and PhD students. I'm very proud of it. I think it's actually a very good model and you need also institutions to, to work along, of course, because you don't issue degrees. So you need partner universities who see it the same way. How does the pipeline express your vision for the company? The pipeline is the company. So we develop targeted drugs in oncology and beyond. So if I start with oncology, we have two branches of the pipeline. In some cases, we use antibodies to deliver protein payloads, especially cytokine payloads. So it's a simple concept. We have cytokines, which are proteins which modulate the activity of the immune system, and we deliver them to the site of disease. And we have part of the pipeline where the payloads are small molecules, maybe a drug, maybe a radionuclide, and then we use small organic ligands to deliver them to the site of disease. So let's start with the most advanced products. We have one product called Needlegy, which is a, a dermato-oncology drug. And basically we deliver two cytokines, interleukin-2 and tumor necrosis factor to the tumor. So it's quite intuitive. If you bring these strong pro-inflammatory cytokines to the tumor, you should be doing something good. Now, dermato-oncology to us means that we started with stage 3 melanoma. This means there is metastatic disease in the skin and in lymph nodes, but it has not yet spread to visceral organs. So you want to stop the disease there. You don't want the patient becomes a stage 4 disease which in spite of progress is still difficult to cure. And when we have published that actually these melanomas go away, uh, then we thought, okay, let's start treating other types of skin conditions. For example, high-risk basal cell carcinomas that often are disfiguring the face. They can be very, very nasty. And we have really been surprised pleasantly to see that the same approach that worked in melanoma seems to be very efficient also in, uh, in, in non-melanoma skin cancer. So for this particular product, the vision was take payloads, interleukin-2 and TNF that were already products on the market, make them more selective and try to achieve the benefit in dermato-oncology. A second program, which is also in phase three clinical trials, is fibromone. In that case, we deliver only tumor necrosis factor. As the name says, it's a cytokine which has the potential to kill tumors. And we have focused in two main indications. One is soft tissue sarcoma and the other one is glioblastoma. So why these indications? Because we were able to cure mice with really aggressive tumors that could not be cured with any alternative medications. We were curing 100% of the mice. And so, of course, the natural transition was to the clinic, hopefully uh, providing a benefit in these two indications, which are really very nasty, soft tissue sarcoma and uh, uh, glioblastoma multiforme are tough indications where really nothing has worked so far. And we have communicated promising results in the clinic. And so you see, you see two most advanced products at phase three clinical trial stage, 
and you see our desire to actually complete the trials and then every trial is a binary event can be yes or can be no but we work with passion then when i look at the younger part of the pipeline we try to do the same with small molecules and we have been i think successful at targeting different types of tumors with small organic molecules for example ligands of a protein called FAP, fibroblast activation protein. You see that these ligands actually selectively image many, many different types of tumors. And it's always the same desire to translate selective targeting into selective therapy. When you describe that, do people ask you the question, are you a platform company or are you, does that, do you, is that a question that you have to face and try to answer? Yes, in the sense we use platforms to discover our vehicles, so our antibodies or our small organic molecules. We have been, you know, building very, very large libraries of antibodies or libraries of small molecules for 20 plus years. Uh, I think we have innovated the field. So the platform is important because any drug to begin with is a binding molecule so you have to be good at discovering the binding molecules but then of course it's the product that matters so i don't really see a, a, a difference you need the platform for the discovery and for the strategy maybe but then you need the development because any drug in the end has to go through its trials several of these as you pointed out are, are advanced phase three um, candidates do you allow yourself at this point to imagine how it would change patients' lives if they were to be approved? Or is that something that as a scientist you say one step at a time? You bet on success. When you design a phase three clinical trials, you set statistical goals. You have to prove a certain superiority with a certain statistical strength. So the moment we start our pivotal trials, we make a promise. That is, we want to reach that particular endpoint. And so then, of course, at the end of the trial, you open the book and you see we have not yet completed the readout of our, let's say, most advanced product, but we have completed recruitment, for example, of, of our most advanced phase three clinical trials. So our pivotal trials will read out. For some trials, you are at phase three, and you are blinded, so you will not know until the end. You typically run interim analysis that would kill the product if there was futility, and our products have actually survived interim analysis. Other programs for very nasty indications may give you registration after phase two, so you don't need to go to phase three, because if you are really solving a, a, a very nasty medical problem and you have strong data you may apply for registration after phase two and this actually happens quite often in oncology and so at that level you actually see results in real time and so you have a pretty good idea whether your drug works or not and we run webinars every two months in which we show pictures and we try to be very transparent about our success and our failures so that Whatever we do, we have a transparent communication with the market. For us, it's still working progress. We are proud of what we have achieved, but we don't have a product on the market yet. So 
this is not time for celebration. This is time for work. We are addressing big unmet medical needs. If you go one by one, uh, melanoma is a killer, even though there has been luckily a lot of progress in the field. If you go for high-risk basal cell carcinoma, the complete response rate of available drugs is still anything like 10%, 20% at best. So there is a lot of margin for improvement in a very disfiguring disease. In glioblastoma, unfortunately, is still almost always fatal. And so unfortunately, there is, uh, for these conditions, these are tough conditions, but at the same time, these are conditions where you have room for improvement. So the strategy is the right one. This I'm absolutely sure, certain. The easiest way to build selectivity when you have a good drug is to make it even better and to make sure it concentrates where you need it, which is at the site of disease. Is there anything that you think people might find of interest in terms of what it's like to be in any of those places that makes it similar to or different from any of those other places? I guess another way to say it would be, is working in Siena any different? Is it the same as it is biopharma, biopharma in Europe? Well, I've been out of Italy for so many years. I came back only about a couple of years ago. I was 35 years abroad, as you mentioned, Switzerland, UK is back in Switzerland. Uh, Siena is a special place because it's a small university town, 50,000 inhabitants, but we have about 3,000 persons that work in biotech in Siena. So it's a little bit, uh, uh, people speak about pharma Tuscany, because there is actually a lot of biotech and pharma in Tuscany. We have operations in Siena because myself and my brothers are from Siena. My brothers were always based in Siena and they've run the operations in Siena. As mentioned, I've spent so many years of my life in Zurich that we really established the discovery activities in Zurich. Uh, there are excellent infrastructures and also excellent universities in Zurich. So it made sense to actually keep discovery in Zurich where we also have access to Animal House, other facilities. And in Siena, we do other things, including manufacturing. Most of our partners are American partners. I travel almost every month to, to the US. And I uh, admire the quality, for example, and actually the transparency, the directness of uh, FDA. For example, I think it's a great authority. But I think in the U.S., I, I get this feeling it, each time I come back, I come back full of energy because I feel that there is this pride of getting the job done and also this commitment to work, which I think is very refreshing. And, I, and of course, you know, the science in the United States is, is great. Also, science in Europe is not bad. But what I'm trying to say, I think it's an international community. Uh, and we meet regularly, either in person or via Zoom. One of the things I'm proud of, I was among the first to work in an area which has become very important. It's called DNA-encoded chemical libraries. That means you use DNA barcodes to identify molecules, and you can build and screen uh, libraries with billions of compounds. You know, previously you had to screen one molecule at a time and maybe you would 
screen, I don't know, one million and that's it. And now you can screen billions of molecules. And for example, we have now built a community uh, and, and we have this DEL symposium, DNA encoded chemical library symposium once a year. Last year it was in Boston, this year it will be in Zurich. So it, it's actually a community and um, it doesn't really matter so much where you work, as long as you work at a given standard. Dario, had you not become a scientist, what other forms of work or inquiry might have been interesting to you? I mean, if I had more time, music, that's something I really like. I like to play, I like to sing, I like to record music. So I'm very happy as a scientist. I think I could be equally happy with music. They're both creative jobs. My, my father used to work with Ernst Chain, Nobel Prize winner for penicillin, and he was an emigrant from Nazi Germany. He was Jewish, so he actually fled to the UK, and he was almost professional piano player. And he told my father that actually he managed to find a position in academia because of his piano skills. So you never know when they can be useful in your life. Thanks for speaking with me today, Dario. Thanks a lot, John. It was a pleasure. As you listen to Dario Neri describe what it's like as a child to have a father be the head of a biopharma company, it's possible to imagine Dario following a well-marked path leading to his role as CEO at Philogen. But for me, a telling part of Dario's story about leadership is when he recounts with a sense of wonder the moment when one of his mentors, Sir Gregory Winter, showed students how a humanized antibody could shrink the spleen of a patient with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma by a factor of five. From that point on, it seemed clear where Dario's intellectual curiosity and his passion for drug discovery could take him. At one point in our conversation, Dario said, science is everything. It's one thing to make a claim and quite another to prove it experimentally. He goes on to describe his determination to find a clear answer to scientific questions, yes or no, which may help him understand what he doesn't know. But Dario reminds us that for him, solving a scientific challenge must always be in the service of his goal to translate selective targeting into selective therapy. Dario's emphasis on scientific rigor might conjure up an image of someone so deeply immersed in his field that he could not imagine any other professional discipline. I smiled to myself at the end of our conversation when Dario said, I love science, but I could equally imagine being a musician. I love to sing. They're both creative jobs. And that's one more reason I enjoy working with biopharma founders and CEOs. For many of the leaders I've met, scientific innovation and creativity are two sides of the same coin. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.